Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Pray with me, please. Father, I do, I do hope and I, I pray that we, we gather eagerly, that we gather with all, in, in, all sincerity, that this is not merely a weekly exercise or something that we feel compelled to do, but that our great delight is to worship our God. And we know from the scriptures that the very essence of worship is rehearsing in our minds, in our hearts, in our words, your mighty works, the works of creation, the works of renewal, of redemption, the works of transformation, the meticulous, all-encompassing goodness and love of our God, the goal of which is ultimately the summing up of everything in Jesus our Lord. And we find in him the great exhaustive act of our God. Father, whatever you are, whatever you do, whatever your intent for your creation, we see it all as yes and amen in Jesus our Lord. And I pray that even in our, our consideration so far today, that, that these things have caused us to again have our hearts and minds lifted above the fray, lifted above the challenges of our personal lives, the challenges of the times in which we live, the circumstances and culture in which we find ourselves. As Nathan said, there's much to fret over, there is much to be concerned about, there's much to be preoccupied with. And I pray that as worshipers that we would be able to, as it were, have our gaze lifted above these things to see our God who does indeed reign. That in the resurrection and enthronement of Jesus our Lord, we see the triumph of our God. And though all of the, the full extent and, and the full power of his triumph it does not yet appear in this world, we know that even now you are building your church your new creation is going forth and bearing its fruit and transforming lives. And one day, it will take everything into its grasp. Even as the creation itself groans and longs with all assurance, all confidence, longs for that day when it too will be taken up in the renewal, the new creation that is in Jesus our Lord. So I pray that our own longing follows suit, 
that we would be a longing people, a faithful people, with hearts and minds set on things above, not a place off distance somewhere called heaven, but hearts and minds set on the reality of an ascended and glorified Messiah who is the first fruits of a new creation in which we ourselves are sharers and which one day will be perfected in the resurrection and the renewal of all things. May that truth, that confidence, that hope bind our hearts and minds and give us um, all persevering faith and faithfulness according to the times and the circumstances that you've appointed for us. That Christ would be glorified not only in our own lives, but, but in the church and through the church in the world. And so, Father, capture our hearts and minds in that way, even as we continue our worship now. Even in our own hearts and minds, let us be in our consideration of of the life of this man, Abraham, may we be again rehearsing back to you your great and mighty deeds. Our God is truly worthy. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we come this morning to the next uh, example that the writer of Hebrews puts forward as an example of faith, and, and certainly this is a man who we would expect to be uh, in that roll call of faith, the man Abraham. I would argue the most important individual in the salvation history culminating with Jesus himself. And the writer of Hebrews gives more attention to Abraham in his recounting here than, than anyone else. And understandably so, Uh, Abraham plays a central role uh, in the book of Genesis. And I would argue that even uh, once he passes off the scene in death, he never really does pass off the scene. Abraham continues to live on in the covenant that God made with him, not only in the descendants that come from him, but as the very uh, foundation of all of God's work in the salvation history that culminates with the coming of Jesus himself. I've said before that we have to consider Hebrews 11 through the lens of the Genesis account uh, as the writer is drawing these individuals from that account. He's not just pulling these people out of thin air or in some Jewish traditional sense, uh, but he is extracting them and presenting them as men and women of faith based on the way they're presented in the scriptures. And that's obviously very much the case with Abraham as well. I've said that the book of Genesis is constructed around 10 generation sections, and it moves very quickly from Noah to Abram, father of a people, That's what his name means, father of a people. And so we have Noah's generation section actually set in the midst of the flood account, as we saw last time. And coming out of the flood right away, then we have the genealogy or the generation section associated with his three sons, who are the foundation of the new humanity coming out of the flood, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
And that generation section is the platform for this thing that we call the Table of Nations, the rehearsing of all of these families that, that come out uh, descended from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that Table of Nations is its own preparation for what we see then in chapter 11 of Genesis, the Tower of Babel event. If you've studied through that, you see that it's actually an anachronistic thing. You have first the listing of all of the nations, languages, peoples, according to their nations. And you say, well, wait a minute, where did we get nations and languages and peoples and all of this dividedness within the human race? It doesn't exist. We've just come out of the flood. We have Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Where did this come from? Chapter 11 then shows us where it comes from, the Babel event, where God takes the unified human race and testifies to really what has come because of the fall, in spite of their hubris. He testifies to what has come by scattering mankind across the face of the earth, confusing their languages. So what we see detailed as the generation's of Shem, Ham, and Japheth in chapter 10 is explained to us through chapter 11 and the event of Babel. And that Babel event then becomes the foundation for the next generation section, which is the generations of Shem. You have the generations of Noah, then the generations of his sons associated with the Babel event, the nations, and then the specific son, Shem. And from Shem very quickly to Terah, the father of Abram. So we have Abraham introduced in chapter 12 of Genesis, and he is the dominant figure all the rest of the way through the book of Genesis. The main figure through Genesis is Jacob, but Jacob is the covenant grandson. So Abraham is the foundation. He's the premise He's the presupposition not only of the book of Genesis, but the whole of the salvation history. And as you read through uh, the Old Testament scriptures in the prophets, in the Psalms, Abraham takes a center place. Because if the scriptures of the Old Testament are the record of the Israelite history, as Israel sits in the center of God's purpose for the world, Israel is nothing but the corporatizing of Abraham himself. Israel is the seed of Abraham, the instrument by which God would undo the curse and restore all things to himself. So Abraham is the great premise that underlies even the coming of the Messiah himself, the seed of Abraham. And hence his genealogy in in Matthew, Jesus' genealogy is introduced in that way. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Abraham, son of David. So Abraham is a key figure, and as I said, the writer of Hebrews devotes more time to him in this roll call of faith than he does anyone else. Just as he is a central figure in the scriptures and certainly in the Genesis account. So from the scripture's vantage point, just to kind of put the sharper point on that, Abraham is, if if the Old Testament is the story of Israel... 
not just generically, not abstractly, not just as a people in some sense, but as Israel is the focal point of God's purposes for the world that reaches its apex in the Messiah, Abram himself, who becomes Abraham, is the substance of Israel's identity, of Israel's calling, Israel's vocation, Israel's covenant life with God, ultimately of God's purpose through Israel for the world. And this becomes important in the way, and we're not going there today, but even in the way the New Testament deals with the person of Abraham in relation to Israel, but also in relation to the Messiah himself. If we don't get Abraham right, let me put it this way, if we don't get Abraham right, we don't get the scriptures right, we don't get the Messiah right, we don't get the Christian faith right, we really don't ultimately understand God's purpose for the world and how that's bound up in Jesus himself. So the writer treats uh, Abraham, we're not going to treat all, the writer of Hebrews treats Abraham uh, with respect to the three primary dimensions of his life with God that testifies of his faith. He's pointing to Abraham and showing how he was a man of faith, and he draws out the three primary things associated with Abraham. The first is God's call to Abraham, and then the whole of Abraham's uh, relationship with Canaan, the land to which God calls him and that he promises him as an inheritance. That's what we're going to consider today. The second part is God's promise to Abraham of a covenant seed. The promise of Isaac, if you will, as a starting point. And then the third primary issue that he deals with here in Hebrews 11 is the obligation of Abraham to offer up to God the covenant seed, the sacrifice of Isaac. So that's the way that the writer treats it. And we're just going, throughout this section in chapter 11, we're just going to consider the first part of that today. So if you look in Hebrews 11, then also we'll be going back to Genesis a lot. So you may want to have your your thumb back there as well. And the reason for that, as we've done throughout chapter 11, is that the only way we can really get at what the writer of Hebrews is getting at is to situate his summaries within the stories as they're unfolded in the book of Genesis. And not just as they sit in Genesis, but as they themselves contribute to the unfolding story of God's purposes for the world, ultimately realized in Jesus himself. But in Hebrews 11, then, verse 8, the writer says, By faith Abraham, when he was called... By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign place, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God.
So again, the writer is talking about this call of Abram and then ultimately the life that he lived in Canaan and the way that he lived and his perspective in his inhabitation in the land of Canaan. That's the fundamental issue that he's dealing with. But all of these dynamics that the writer is going to, to unfold for us have to be looked at through the lens, ultimately, of God's covenant with Abraham. It's not just, okay, he promised him a land. Okay, he promised him a, a seed, a son. Okay, he told him, go kill your son. Wow, that's weird. Why would God do that? All of these things have to be understood within the framework of the covenant that God made with Abraham, and more than just the fact of the covenant, the significance of the covenant, the purpose for it, the purpose that it served, again, in the outworking of God's purposes for the world. That's a critical point. Even as we understand this issue of Abram's faith, faith has to be understood through that lens, and and we'll deal with that more as we move on but just as kind of a teaser at the outset. We have to rethink what faith is in the light of the way the writer of Hebrews is treating it. So I want to consider this then just under those two primary parts, the call of God to Abram and then the, and then the living out of that call, Abram's life in the land of Canaan. And then we'll conclude with his interpretation of the mindset of Abram uh, as he lived as an alien and a stranger in the land. So the first thing then, as I've already hinted at, is that Genesis treats Abram as the pinnacle of this thing called Seth's godly line. We've seen how, how Genesis treats the flow of mankind out of Adam along the trajectory of two lines of descent. Sometimes called the, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, or whatever. But, but it's this godly line, so to speak, this faithful line through Seth. Not that every individual in the line was a godly person, but there is this particular line associated with Seth and then the other one associated with Cain. And Genesis is most concerned to track Seth's line, ultimately as that will culminate with what? Jesus, the Messiah himself. But Abram is treated as the pinnacle. At this point in the salvation history, he's the pinnacle of Seth's line. You say, well, what comes out of the the flood with respect to Seth? Well, it's Shem. Noah is a descendant of Seth, but among his three sons, that line of descent continues through Shem. And you see in the blessing that Noah pronounces on his sons after the flood, he refers to Shem as the one who uh, is is most uniquely or particularly related to God. God is now the God of Shem. God will dwell with Shem. The word Shem means name. God will make a name for himself through Shem. And that even plays out then in terms of the Babel thing where you have mankind trying to make a name for itself. And God crushes that because the name that man will have is the name that God gives to him. But Shem becomes the perpetuation of that line of Seth. And we move from Shem very quickly, as I said, in his generation section, 
we move from Shem to Terah. Terah, the father of Abram. Terah had three sons, Nahor, Haran, and Abram. And once Abraham's introduced, he becomes the focal point of the whole salvation history going forward. So the text presents Abram, and the New Testament affirms this, but even the Genesis text presents him, maybe not as explicitly as the New Testament, as the preeminent man of faith, the man who believes God and it is reckoned to him for righteousness, right? And yet, if we're following the story, that's a very unexpected thing. There is no Israel, there is no Israelite people. There is a world of scattered nations, tribes, peoples. Abram is living in Ur of the Chaldees. Ur was a city-state at that time, somewhere around 2000 B.C., At one time, it was, many believe, it was the largest city on the planet, at least certainly in the Near East. But it sits at the the bottom of the Mesopotamian Valley, the Tigris-Euphrates area, if if you're familiar with that. It's it's modern-day Iraq. But the Tigris and Euphrates run down southeast, and then they come together just right before they dump into the Persian Gulf. And Ur is down there right at the point, ancient Ur, where the two rivers came together. But that whole area is a long, fertile plain all the way up to modern-day Turkey, if you look at it on a map. That area is where the scripture is referring to when it talks about the plains of Shinar. What happened on the plains of Shinar, the Tower of Babel? And so the point is, is that at Babel, God scattered mankind, confused their languages, created a kind of alienation between the uh, members of the human race, communities. Before that, the whole world was one language in one place coming out of the flood, right? Everybody was descended from Shem, Ham, or Japheth. They were all in the same, same area. So now we have the beginning of nations, the scattering, changing of languages, testifying to the essential division and and discord among the human race. But that occurred on the plains of Shinar. Ur is right there in that area, the lower end of Mesopotamia. So Abram and his family evidently didn't go very far from that area when God did this work of confusing and scattering. He's still sitting there in the midst of that area that epitomizes human hubris, human rebellion against God, the plains of Shinar. It becomes a symbol for wickedness and rebellion even later in the book of Zechariah, if you remember in the visions of Zechariah. And I won't go back there, but if you went back and looked, wickedness is taken and a shrine is built for her, this woman in the plains of Shinar. Abram is right there at the place that most symbolizes at this point in the scripture human rebellion against God and God's judgment against men. And he is a pagan. 
Yes, he's a descendant of Seth. Yes, he's a descendant of Shem. But even Joshua, in the book of Joshua, it attests that Abram and his relatives, his forefathers, served the gods of Mesopotamia, right? The primary deity in that area was uh, the moon god, Nana. And there's even a, the remnants of a ziggurat, a, a shrine to Nana there at the, the ruins of Ur. Abram, the point is, Abram was not a worshiper of the living God. He didn't know that God. He was not a godly man. And he was 75 years old when he received this call. What comes to my mind right away is, well, how did he, what was this call? Did he hear a voice in his head? He didn't see a person. How did that work? And how did he even know who was talking to him? The text actually refers to God as Yahweh called him. And and if, if you recall, that's the covenant name of God, by which he was known, he was to be known to Abraham's descendants as their covenant God. And in the book of Exodus, it says, God says that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did not know me as Yahweh. That is the covenant name that I am now giving to you, Moses, to tell the sons of Israel, who is this God that has sent me to you? But the text refers to this God as Yahweh, which is a foretaste of where it's going. The call to Abraham is ultimately looking to a covenant relationship with the living God who will be known by the name Yahweh. He is. But how God called him, how Abram knew who he was hearing, all of that, the text doesn't tell us. It simply says, God called Abram. This, you see this in Genesis 12. God says, leave your country, leave your father's house, and go to a place that I will show you. And the text says that Abram went. And he left with his father, Terah, with his nephew, Lot. And he left with his wife, Sarai. She wasn't Sarah. She wasn't Sarah yet. And they began the journey. They didn't know where they were going. God didn't say, as far as the text tells us. God says, go. Go to a place that I will show you. But they ended up in Haran, which is about 600 miles away to the northwest. Basically, God led them up that Mesopotamian plain between the Tigris and Euphrates. Haran, where where that place is, is right kind of at the, the border between Turkey and Syria today. So 600 miles up that valley is where God led them. And they, were, they, they settled in Haran until Abraham's father, Terah, died. And then God spoke to him again and said, time to set out again. And God brought him. You read this also in Stephen's account in Acts 7, where he rehearses the salvation history leading up to the Messiah as he preaches the good news to the Jewish people, Stephen 
So you have his account, you have the Genesis account. But they stop in Haran and then Terah dies. They may have stopped there because of Terah being old and being sick. We don't know. And how long they're there, we're not exactly sure. But God then says, okay, it's time to set out again. Now he comes down south from Haran uh, into the land of Israel, passing as far as Shechem, ultimately all the way south to Beersheba in that area. So it goes all the way up and comes all the way back down. Say, why wouldn't he just go this way? Well, that's the Arabian desert. That would not be the way to go. So God leads them by a really long route, but by a route whereby they would be provided for. So God says to Abram, go to a place that I will show you. And all he tells him initially is, I will, make, I will give you a great name. I will make you great. I will give you a great name. I will bless, I will make you a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's what God first tells Abram in Genesis 12. So it's important to note at that point, there is no covenant with Abram. And there is no promise of Canaan as his inheritance. When they arrive in Canaan, then Abram gives Lot. Both of them have a lot of sheep. They have a lot of animals, and they can't graze in the same land. And Abram tells Lot, you pick what you want. Lot looks to the fertile Jordan Valley going down towards where Sodom and Gomorrah were, and he says, I'll take that land. So Abram says, okay, fine. It's after Lot divides and goes off in one direction that God then tells Abram, walk through the land. And all that you see, look to the north, south, west, and east, and walk through the land. All that you see, I will give to you and your descendants for an inheritance. That's the first time. He's already in the land when God tells him, I'm going to give this to you. At the outset, God just says, start walking to a place I'm going to show you. He doesn't say, go to this place that I'm going to give you. He doesn't have that incentive. And there's no covenant in place at this point. The covenant is actually ratified in chapter 15. So all you have is God saying, here's what I want you to do. No explanation, no incentive, no present or reward at the end. Here's what I want you to do. Well, Abram... The second piece of this is the writer of Hebrews kind of, again, in a summary way, says here's what Abram's life was like in Canaan. He lived as an alien in the land that had been promised to him. The land that was his inheritance, he lived as an alien in it. He and his covenant son, when Isaac came, and then his covenant grandson, Jacob, when Jacob was born, they lived in tents. They lived as nomads. They were wanderers. And that's important. They're in the place of inheritance, and they're wanderers. So you have this picture of Abram in Genesis. I've kind of uh, expressed this in terms of this idea of triumphal transience. Triumphal transience. Abram arrives in Canaan with his wife. 
there's a famine right away. He goes down to Egypt. You, you, you read about that. You know, Pharaoh then takes Sarah into his harem. And, you, you know, all, it, that happens again later with Abimelech. But Abram has his own exile because of famine to Egypt, which is a kind of presaging, a prefiguration of what's going to happen to Abram corporatized in his son Jacob and, and the 12 tribes related to that, right? Don't they go down to Egypt because of a famine? And that becomes their exile. So Abram goes to Egypt, then he comes back. You see this in and out of the land, moving around, transients. You see it particularly with Jacob. He goes to Haran, right? He's driven to Haran because of his conflict with Esau. And he, he lives there with Laban for several years. Jacob himself ends up in Egypt with his sons and their families, and he dies in Egypt. A transient existence in the promised land, and yet a triumphal one. Abraham is recognized by the men of that land as a powerful man. You see that in Genesis 14. He, you have five kings warring against four kings. They're, they're all kings in that, that area of Canaan. And the five kings are defeated by the four. And his nephew Lot is taken captive. And Abram goes out with 300, I think 318 men. That's all of his household. Men of his house. And these four kings and their armies who routed the five kings, Abram goes out with this handful of men, relatively speaking, and he defeats them and regains Lot. That's the episode there where you see Melchizedek coming out to him, right? We saw that in Hebrews, the whole Melchizedek story. King of Salem, priest of God most high, chapter 14, Genesis. He comes out. Abram's triumph with 318 men over four kings who could defeat five kings in their armies. You see him, you, you see him having a presence, you know, Abimelech, acknowledging the greatness of Abraham, these kings, Abimelech, my father the king. It was kind of a title for these men, Abimelech. There's more than one. So there's a greatness to Abram, but he's a nomad living in tents. He has nothing. And eventually, the only foothold that he has in the land is the field at, at Mamre, right? And the cave at Machpelah that he purchases as a burial place for Sarah. And then he's buried there. And then Isaac and Rebekah are buried there. And when Jacob dies in Egypt, Joseph says to Pharaoh, let me take my father back to be buried in our homeland. And Jacob is taken back in death to be buried in the cave at Machpelah. That's the only possession that Abram has in the land. He's a great man. He's a powerful man. And God said, I will make you, I will make your name great, and I will make you a great nation. 
But even though he's promised him this inheritance, Abram does not enjoy it as an inheritance. Neither does his covenant son, who we're going to consider the next time, the greatness of the situation with Isaac, the one who represents life out of death. He doesn't possess the land. Jacob doesn't possess the land. So Abram's life in Canaan was this kind of uh, strange blend of, of, of a kind of triumphalism, but also a transience. And it was also very much a temporary sojourn. God eventually told him that this land will be possessed by your descendants who will come after you. Well, that didn't happen with Isaac. It didn't happen with Jacob. And in fact, God says this will come after 400 years of subjugation, which wasn't just in Egypt, but subjugation even in Canaan. From Abraham uh, to the return from the Exodus is the 400 years. It wasn't 400 years in Egypt. But finally, the sons of Israel were the ones who inherited that land. Abraham never enjoyed it. So just a couple summary things about Abraham's faith then, as the writer is pointing to these things uh, to, to show us his faith. The first thing is that, again, at the outset, Abraham had no idea that some voice... He didn't know this God. He had no idea how, how this was heard, how he knew, we don't know. But Abram received a call without being told where he was going, what awaited him, how he would get there, 600 miles just to get to Haran. And then waiting there. And then God says, okay, it's time to set out again. And eventually God brings them into Canaan a long process without information about what's going to happen, what's this going to be like, what's the route, where do we stop for dinner, what about this, what about that? God says, go. Even beyond the fact of God not giving him information, it was a call that came to him again from an unknown God. He didn't know who this being was. He had no history with this God. God also promised that he would make Abram a great nation. Well, implied in that is what? Descendants. How could he be a great nation without descendants? And yet, Abram is 75 years old at that point. His wife, Sarai, is younger than him, but she's introduced in the text. The first thing the text says about Sarai, she's barren. Even when she was young, she never had children. Now she's an old woman. God says, I'll make you a great nation. And if you read through the Genesis text, you see later God says, you know, what Abram thinks is that I'll be a great nation because God will raise up a servant in my house. That's how this will happen. And God says, no, this will be a son to come from your own body. And he says, okay, I guess I can believe that, even though I'm a very old man. 
but it's clearly not going to be Sarah. She's old. And after 10 years of waiting, Sarah says, maybe it's going to be this way. Here's my, my maidservant, Hagar. Take her as your wife. Maybe that's how God's going to do this. And God says, no, that child, Ishmael, through Hagar, I'll make him a great nation too. He's your offspring. But the child of the promise will come from Sarah herself. How can that be? And the the name of the child is what? Yitzhak. He laughs. Why? Because Abraham laughed when God said that. Sarah laughed when God said, come on. How can this be? His name will be, he laughs. Yitzhak. Isaac. God also promised later, once Abram was actually in Canaan, God promised him Canaan is his inheritance. But as I said, Abram never possessed any of it. He had a well that that he dug at Beersheba that Abimelech deeded over to him, the well of seven, Beersheba. But other than the cave at Machpelah, which he purchased, that, that area as a burial area, he had none of this land. All of these things, here's the point, they underscore that the the central issue in Abram's faith was his enduring confidence in the God who had promised, in spite of the fact that virtually everything in his life argued against all of that. The Genesis account even tells its story to give you that impression. It presses that on you in the way it tells its story. It's not just a theological conclusion. It's the way Genesis tells you the Abraham story. Bruce Walke says this, The plot is driven by Abraham's struggle to trust God in the face of a series of conflicts that test that trust, that faith. His faith develops as he trusts God in spite of a childless wife, famine in the land, exile in a hostile land, the kidnapping of his wife in pagan king's harems, an ungrateful nephew who sees his land for himself, war against mighty kings, family strife between rival wives and their children, his withering body and death itself with the promise still unfulfilled. In addition, Abraham's God is very mysterious to him. He's not a God that he knew, that he had worshipped through his 75 years. And this is a God who ultimately says to him, what Waltke is getting at is this God says to him, I'm going to give you this son, I'm going to give you this son, it's through this son. This is the son of the covenant. It's through this son that my word to you will be upheld. It's through this son that you'll know that I'm true. It's through this son that you'll know that I keep my word. It's through this son that you'll become a great nation, that you'll become a family of nations. It's through this son that Sarah, the princess, will be the mother of kings. Kings and rulers will come forth from you. It's through this son who will come from your dead body and from your wife's dead body. And now here he is, and now kill him as an act of worship. A mysterious God. A God who doesn't make sense in what he seems to be requiring. And Abraham had to trust God through all of that. 
Well, the writer gives us an insight. The writer of Hebrews gives us an insight. Uh, and I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, but if you, if you look back to the Genesis account, what the writer tells us in, in verse 10 is he, he has an insight here that you don't get from the Genesis text. He's summarizing the Abraham story to this point, but then he says that Abram was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. When he looks at at Abram's mindset in how he endures in this confidence in God when nothing that was promised to him actually is realized in his life, Abram died without anything God had promised to him actually being realized in his experience. And the writer of Hebrews gives us this psychological insight. He says Abram was looking to what God had actually promised him. And as I said, you don't get this from the Genesis text. But the writer says that Abram embraced this Alien, this alien status, a wanderer, living in tents, traveling around, a sojourner, transient, never receiving what was promised. He embraced that not because he trusted, okay, well, I won't see this, but my descendants will. He doesn't say Abram's confidence was in the fact that Abram said, okay, One day I'm going to have all these descendants and they'll get the land of Canaan, even though I don't. They'll be the great nation. Rather, what caused him to hold on to and embrace his sojourner status was his understanding that Canaan only symbolized the actual inheritance that God promised to him. And this has huge theological import in all sorts of areas beyond where I want to go today. But because when you go back to the Genesis account, you don't see this idea, it raises the question, how did the writer of Hebrews know that? Where did he get this idea? You don't find it in the account of Abram in the Genesis record. Some have tried to say, well, it's, it's just kind of a, um, a, a metaphorical way of expressing again what I already hinted at, which is that, that Abram looked to this inheritance of Canaan that his descendants would enjoy. That's really what this looking to a city with foundations. And in a certain sense, you can say, okay, well, if foundations speak of kind of a secure, settled place, you can say, well, in a sense, Canaan was that in the way that God presented it to Israel. He said, I'm going to go ahead of you, and I'm going to drive out the inhabitants of the land. I'm going to secure it for you. As you move in, I'll be going ahead of you and clearing the way. And I'm going to give you cities that you didn't build, and I'm going to give you wells you didn't dig, and I'm going to give you uh, fields that you didn't till and prepare. I'm going to give you this place, right? A land of milk and honey. 
and I'm going to drive out your enemies and give you security and peace. And you could say, okay, well, that kind of sounds like a place of uh, a city with foundations or a place that is secure and established. But the problem is, is that even from the outset, Canaan was treated as a tentative inheritance. You, you, you look before the, the Jews even went into Canaan, uh, Deuteronomy 28 through 30, it's not going to go well for you. You're going to go in there, but it's not going to last. It's not going to be peace. It's not going to be settled. It's not going to be secure. Look at the period of the judges. And then ultimately you have the exiles themselves, right? There is a tentativeness and there is a transience of even life in the land. Both that God predicted and that was realized in Israel's experience. And even more importantly, the writer says that Abram had his eyes set not on a land that his, inhabit, that his descendants would inherit, but a city. Specifically, a city. And even more importantly, when we take that statement here, this idea of a city that was Abram's inheritance, that becomes a key theme in the balance of Hebrews. And I'm not going to go there today, but if you search it out for yourself, you'll see that. Once he introduces this idea of a city whose architect and builder, the one who envisions it, the one who designs it, the one who constructs it, is God himself. Once this is introduced here, it becomes a key theme going through the rest of the epistle. And it's clear that the writer isn't talking about the land of Canaan. The writer will show this city to be the joint divine human habitation that fulfills the symbolic role of Canaan. What was the significance of Canaan? You see it in the Song of Moses, Exodus 15. The Lord will bring us into his sanctuary land, to his holy mountain, to his dwelling place. As you've heard me say so many times, the Exodus wasn't God saying, here, you're free, go have a wonderful life. And call on me when you need something. He brought them out of Egypt to bring them to himself. Right? Canaan was God's sanctuary. It was his dwelling place. And it ultimately gets localized in Jerusalem itself, the city of the great God, and more narrowly in the sanctuary in Jerusalem, which is the center of the earth in, in in the way the scriptures view it. That's the center of the earth. That's the place where heaven and earth come together. That's the place where the created realm meets and interacts with the creator, most focused in the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant, which is the footstool of God's feet. His throne is in heaven, the Ark is his footstool. It's the conjoining point of the divine space and the earthly space. You can go back to that sacred space, God with us series, and and look at all of this. But that's what the writer's talking about. He's not talking about heaven, the celestial city, people going off to a place called heaven. He's talking about the realization of what the covenant with Abraham was all about, is that that this would 
issue in God being the God of a people and a people being his people. I will be the God of Abraham and his descendants, and they will be my people, and I will dwell with them. The first thing God told Israel, the Abrahamic people at Sinai, is build me a sanctuary that I would dwell in your midst. That's what this city is all about. It speaks to the idea of a habitation jointly inhabited by God and his people. It's the fulfillment of the symbolism of Canaan, with again Canaan having its focal point in Jerusalem in its sanctuary. So you see the imagery portrayed even in Genesis 1 and 2 coming to a head in Revelation 21 and 22. A new Jerusalem, which the writer of Hebrews says, already you have come to the new Jerusalem, the city of the living God. And to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to a myriad of angels, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new and better covenant, right? And we'll deal with this more, but that's the point behind it. So when we understand the writer's statement about Abram looking to something beyond this land that he was walking around in, that has to be interpreted in terms of the covenant, what God had actually promised him. That covenant, again, presupposes, builds on God's covenant with Noah, God's covenant with the creation after the flood, all of which reflects back on the promise in Eden to remove the curse, to resolve the curse through Eve's seed. And at the heart of the covenant with Abram is what? The promise of a seed. A seed through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the text, as it's building its case, wants you to understand that this curse-resolving seed promised to Eve is going to be a descendant of Abraham. So that the resolution of the curse will involve all the families of the earth being blessed. The seed through whom the creator's blessing would flow out to and embrace all the earth's family is the seed who would liberate the creation from the curse. That's how the text wants you to understand that one promised to Abram. That's why Paul can say, and maybe people pass over it when they read in Romans 4, but Paul says that God covenanted to Abram the earth. God told Abram that he would be heir of the earth. He didn't say heir of Canaan. This is very important, and I don't want to go down this path, but in our culture, in our evangelical culture, we're very much about the Zionism idea and that God promised this land called Canaan to the Jewish people forever. Paul would disagree with that. He says God promised Abram that he was heir of the earth. And even Jesus himself hints at it in the Sermon on the Mount when he says what? Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the land of Canaan. No, the earth. The earth. When we connect Abram and his seed and the promise to Abram, whose name is changed to Abraham, Avravham, father of many peoples, We connect that with the promise of a seed in Genesis 3, and we see that this is associated with the renewal of the creation and God filling it with his presence in a a 
human family of image children that dwell with him, the realization of the city. Jesus himself said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. He didn't know me. He didn't know my name, Jesus. He didn't have a developed messianic theology, but he knew that what God had promised to him was a renewal of all things in an offspring to come from him. Abram saw my day and rejoiced. So that's how Paul can speak of Abram as heir of the earth. And that's how he can also say that when God made his promise to Abraham and his seed, he didn't say seeds as many, even though Israel was many, but seed as one, seed as the Messiah. Paul recognized that ultimately the promise to Abraham bound up in a child focused on and had its ultimate point of reference in one particular descendant of Abraham, not the whole nation of Israel, not even just the tribe of Judah. When God made his promise to Abraham and his seed, he didn't say seeds as many, but seed as one, the Messiah himself. Therefore, if you belong to the Messiah, you are children of Abraham and heirs of the promise made to Abraham. Very important in our understanding of what God is doing and what he's accomplishing in Jesus. So the children of Israel then, the Abrahamic seed, they do go on and inherit the land that God pledged to Abraham. If you read in the Exodus account, that's what God says. I've remembered my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's time. I'm bringing you out. I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. And they did inherit that land. But all of the people of Israel also died without receiving the promise. That's what the writer says at the end of Hebrews 11, right? And he's already said it earlier. If Joshua had given them rest, then God later on through David wouldn't have spoken of another day. Today, if you hear his voice, right, enter into my rest. Every Israelite, every descendant of Abraham died without receiving what was promised, even though they had inherited the land of Canaan. They died also, just like Abraham, in hope of a future son of Abraham, a true Israelite, a true Israel in whom the Abrahamic people, the Abrahamic seed would be realized in truth, embodied, realized in truth, so that the Abrahamic seed the people of Israel could go on and actually fulfill their identity and their calling in the world. This is very much the prophets. God would would see to it that the Abrahamic people fulfilled their calling, their covenant calling, by making Israel be Israel indeed in a particular Israelite who would embody Israel. The son of the covenant in whom all of Abraham's children would be identified, defined, and would obtain the blessings of liberation and gathering and sonship. So here's my parting shot with this for now. We, if we are Christians in truth, if we are sharers in the Messiah who has embodied Israel, the one who is reconstituting the covenant household in himself, If we are sharers in him, we are also children 
of Abraham, heirs of the promise made to him. Heirs of the promise made to him. We share in the Abrahamic blessing, but the Abrahamic promise. And we too die in faith, not having obtained the fullness of the promise. This is where the writer of Hebrews is going to go. Hence, our own faith. My point in that is that faith is one of those, those Christianese terms that everybody knows, like gospel, faith, you know, whatever. We, we, we have a Christian vernacular, but we don't think about often what these terms mean. And for the most part, faith means believing that God is good and he's going to do good things. Faith means believing that my wish dream, and we don't put it this way, but that God is going to meet and satisfy my wish dream. I have faith in God. I have faith that this is going to work out. I have faith that this is going to happen. I have faith this is going to be fixed. Faith is our confidence that God will meet our expectations. And what the writer of Hebrews is building the case for is that faith has nothing to do with our expectations of this life. Does that mean God never gives us good things? No. But that has nothing to do with faith. Faith is saying, I know this God who has promised. I understand what he has promised. And I bind myself resolutely intractably to what he has promised. And what he has promised is all bound up in the Messiah and his work and where this is all going. That's why we die in faith without receiving what is promised too. Because what still, yes, the, the essence, the substance of God's promise His oath to Abraham is yes and amen in the Messiah. But we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We, too, are living in the context of waiting for the consummation, the renewal of all things, the summing up of all things in the Messiah. The human destiny, the destiny of the family of Abraham, the Abrahamic people as God has promised it. That's what our faith is tied to. It's not tied to what happens in this life. Again, you look at Abraham, everything in his life said, God isn't, either I misunderstood what he said or he's not faithful to what he said. Because everything in my life argues against what he's promised me. And I go out of this world without having received what he promised me. God isn't faithful. And we hear it all the time in our culture. God isn't faithful. Because I thought he was going to do this. I prayed about this. I hoped in this. My pastor told me this. I found a verse in the Bible that says that. And God hasn't done it. He either doesn't exist, he's not good, or he's not faithful. But what the scripture calls faith is binding ourselves to God's purpose for the creation and our place in that. Not the details of this particular life. Abraham never saw any of that. His life argued against the faithfulness of God. And if we don't understand what faith is, we're going to say, 
our God isn't faithful. How could this happen? Why is our country this way? Why is my family this way? I thought God loved me. How come this? How come that? How come the other thing? I thought God promised an abundant life. Whatever. You see where I'm going with this? We have to get our eyes off of our expectations of the day-to-day existence that we have here and see this God who's working all things towards the good that is his summing up of everything in the heavens and the earth and the Messiah. We trust God for the destiny of all things that he's appointed and our share in that. And that doesn't tell us anything about what it's going to look like for us in this life. Abram is made perfect together with us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. God has kept his word to Abraham, even though Abraham never saw anything that resembled God keeping his word in his own lifetime. And saints, this frees us up to actually be people of faith. Because we're not binding God to our wish dream or our expectations. That's why I even started in my prayer saying, worship is not saying, oh God, you're good, you're kind, you're nice, whatever. Worship is rehearsing back to God the truth of what he's done based on the meaning of what he's done and our relationship to that. Look at the great worship scenes in the Bible and that's what you see. We don't worship God because he meets our expectations. He never will meet our expectations. He doesn't write himself into our story. He writes us into his. He writes us into his. And it may look like, from our vantage point, the most miserable life as we would imagine it in this world. Paul did not have a happy life. Paul did not have an easy life. Jesus did not have an easy life. In fact, his life was so difficult that people viewed him as cursed by God, smitten, demon-possessed. And he was the uniquely beloved of the Father. None of us would want Jesus' life. None of us would want Paul's life. And yet somehow we think that faith means that if I just hold tightly to these things and confess my sin, then God's going to fill out the wish dream. And you fill in the blank of what your wish dream happens to be at this point in time, but that's not how it works. And when we can trust God, rise above the fray, then, as Paul said, I've learned the secret of contentment in all things. That's how God remains faithful. His purposes will be realized. And by his grace and goodness, we're written into those purposes. We may not know now exactly how that works, But we are written into those purposes. That's what Paul means when he says God works all things together for good with respect to those who love him, called according to his purpose, scripted into his purposes. We're essential to God's purposes, but it doesn't look like what we think it's going to look like in this life. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Even liberation from expectation Let's pray. Father, these are such critical things and and, and just another way in which we so readily and naturally take 
the truth as it is in Jesus and rewrite it in terms of our natural minds, our natural perspective. Sometimes it sounds even blasphemous to say that we ought to have no expectations of this life. But rightly understood, we ought to have no expectations of this life. We don't measure our God by our circumstances. We don't measure our God and his truthfulness by how things play out in our experience day by day. We take you to be truthful because we believe what you have said and you have interpreted what you have said by what you have done. With the great act, the great speech act being the Messiah himself. In Jesus, we hear the fullness of the divine word. We hear the fullness or see the fullness of the divine work. In him, we understand and perceive and cling to the faithfulness of our God. That's the sense in which Jesus plus nothing is everything. And I pray, Father, that you will help us in these things. Forgive us for our faithlessness. Even if we're people who are constantly, fervently, eagerly in prayer, believing you for the things that we hope for, that is not faith. And I pray that you will forgive us and that you will cause us to walk before you with the kind of quiet complacency, the trusting confidence that says, I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've entrusted to him against that day. And that we would learn the mystery the secret of contentment. Whatever our circumstance, we can do all things in Christ, who is our strength, who is carrying us towards that great day of consummation when all things will be summed up in him such that our God will be all in all. That's what we hold on to. And we don't know what that will mean today, tomorrow, or the next day in our lives. But Father, help us to walk as sojourners and aliens in that way. Not to escape from this world where things will be better, but to know that even this world that you love, that you created, that you've appointed to endure forever, is appointed for its own renewal. We will have this earth and our lives in this earth in the way that you intended, someday and everlastingly. Bless us in these things. I pray that you would encourage these saints. I pray that you would give each of us the, the, the presence of mind and, and, and the, the, the time and, and energy of meditation and contemplation, that these things would sink deep into our souls and transform the way we look, not only at the world around us, but our own lives, the things we suffer, the things that are unjust, the things that aren't right, the things that are agonizing, And to be able, along with Abraham, to have our gaze set on a city with foundations of which you, Father, are both architect and builder. That we would see your glory in the face of Christ our Lord. Do this work for his namesake, for the sake of his church. Amen.